Hey, it's John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and it's The Entrepreneurial You, the show for dedicated and passionate Caribbean entrepreneurs seeking daily inspiration, brought to you by author, speaker, and award-winning entrepreneur, Henneka Wakis-Porter. You must be prepared to ignite. Coming up on this episode of The Entrepreneurial You... I don't think passion is enough. I don't think having a strong interest or having even having a great idea is enough. You know, I like to say a great idea is worth uh, 20%. You have to bring it, you have to execute, you have to make great decisions, and you have to have good timing. Hi, my peak performer. I am Henneka Watkins-Porter, host of the Entrepreneurial You podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Bookophilia, Jamaica Stock Exchange, and Patwa Apparel. And now, let's go to today's episode. Joining us on The Entrepreneurial You today is a bootstrap entrepreneur who took something he loved and turned it into an online business that attracted over 10 million registered members. He sold the company in 2007 for millions of dollars and has since authored three books, including a modern version of the I Ching called The Visionary I Ching. Today, we're going to focus more on his newest book entitled Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, Cultivating Intuitive Intelligence. He is a sought-after speaker, raconteur, philanthropist, and founder of the Divination Foundation. I'm so excited to start a conversation with Paul O'Brien. Welcome, Paul, to The Entrepreneurial You. Thank you, Hanukkah. So happy to be here. I have a fun question for you before we get started. Which bad habits of other people drive you crazy? Wow. That is a, that is a good one. I think what drives me crazy is people who don't keep their agreements. To me, that's just vital to any relationship, whether it's a business relationship or a, a personal relationships. So I, I think the idea that you can just say, oh, sorry, something came up and let and, and have and think that that's good enough. That drives me crazy. I want you to I want you to say, sorry, I missed our appointment. How can I make it up to you? And then I'm going to ask for a foot massage and I'm going to feel a lot better. <laughs> well, you know, it seemed like the same thing that drives you crazy is the same thing that drives me crazy as well. I hate when persons don't honor their commitment. Yay gets me really does. <laughs> All right, so we're going to head into straight into our discussion, Paul. Your book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, is based on your story of business success. What is remarkable about your story? It's written up in the book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing. Uh, it's the story of a person who left a secure, high-paying executive position in order to pursue something more meaningful even though it was going to involve a lot of sacrifice and a major cut in pay and a possible um, uh, detour from his career path. So the fact that I was not money was not primarily money motivated, that I chose meaning over money and did something that fascinated me. And then the money came anyway, um, which is a true story, is, is a this is kind of it's one of those do what you love and the money will follow stories. Um, and it took a long time. I mean, I starved for 13 years keeping it all together. 
But um, I, I'd say that's a lot different than people who are constantly reading Inc. magazine for franchising opportunities or, or trying to come up with the next great idea to take on Shark Tank. I basically followed uh, a path of, of, of something that I loved and that I wanted to make something of it. And I felt like, well, if I can just make a living at this, I will be very happy uh, even if I um, don't make as much money. So that's a little bit different. You know, some persons would disagree with you um, because a lot of the new thinkers these days, they're, they're, they're more into saying that, yes, you have a passion and you're liking, but sometimes, you know, following your passion won't necessarily get you the money that you want. I mean, you're not you're not really driving after money and you're not pursuing money. You're pursuing freedom and you're pursuing meaning. But what would you say to those naysayers who are, who are saying it's not about the passion? It's not about it's about the skill that you have and what can really drive that income. Oh, I would agree with that. I, I don't think passion is enough. I don't think having a strong uh, interest or having even having a great idea is enough. You know, I like to say a great idea is worth uh, maybe 20%. You have to bring it, you have to execute, you have to make great decisions, and you have to have good timing. There's, I, I boil it down to the three primary factors of entrepreneurial uh, success. Uh, you've got to have, re, you've got to be resourceful. And if you don't have financial resources, you have to be extra resourceful. You have to be very scrappy and creative. And, and the second one, so resourcefulness is the first one. And the second one is determination. And that is, if you really want to see something through, you have to have a lot of determination because there's a lot of bumps in the road. Stuff goes wrong. There's no there's no plan that ever works out. You know, they always the old expression is, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. The third one is uh, is timing, uh, and timing is a decision. So I wrote that's why I wrote a whole book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, about the essence of intuitive decision making, or I call it visionary decision making. It's driven by intuition, but it also involves logic, and that's where the rubber meets the road. So if you 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 got to answer two questions. What is the best next move I could make? And that might be a question you ask yourself if you're playing chess or playing Go. And this, that's the what question. And then the second question is, and when should I pull the trigger? And that's the timing question. Well, the what question, you can bring logic to bear. You can, you know, sort of like analyze things and think, well, that's a wonderful idea. I love it. I'm fascinated by this. And, you know, but does that mean it's going to be a good business or is that going to be just a hobby or a personal interest? So that's a logical analysis uh, that uh, impinges on the what question. But then the when question, once you make a decision, you've got to make the secondary decision is when should I pull the trigger? When should I execute? And that's the timing question. And that one is almost 100% intuitive. And, you know, they say timing is everything. And this idea of, of having of developing great timing is the holy grail. Everybody wants that. And it's a very uh, interesting and difficult thing to master. And that's why I wrote the book to help people uh, get a better handle on these uh, important decisions that I call visionary decision making. 
So the whole book is about my system of visionary decision making. And so you're essentially saying it's not just about what it is that you will do, you know, what is the, ne- the, the best next move, but it's also essential to identify that perfect timing so they come together and they meet at this beautiful point, if, as it were. Yeah, well, and that's a very tricky thing because if you're an entrepreneur, you want to be ahead of your time. You just don't want to be, you know, light years ahead of your time. You want to be probably a year or two ahead of your time because if you're too far ahead of your time like I was, I was 12 years ahead of my time um, when I first uh, started my business in 1989. And that was really hard uh, because uh, the market wasn't ready for what I had to offer. Plus, you run the risk of somebody coming along who has more resources, who gets inspired by your idea, you know, and realizes that they have the resources to execute it. And so you can easily uh, lose out to somebody like that if you're too far ahead of your time. So you want to be a year or two ahead of your time and you've got to have enough uh, resources in order to survive that year or two. You know, they call it the runway. You know, you got to have enough resources to get off the runway to sustainability. That's not easy. And that's, that's why most people... Uh, you know, try to raise money um, in order to uh, finance getting off the runway. In my case, I didn't have uh, very much financial resources. I had my life savings at that time was about $50,000. And I didn't have family money to turn to. And I had such a crazy idea, which I loved, but still, from a business point of view, was probably the dumbest idea ever. But I was just driven by love to do something that they would have laughed me off of Shark Tank. That's for sure. This is actually all about decision making. Why do you say that decision making is the highest leverage human skill? It's the highest paying skill. It's what we pay uh, CEOs uh, enormous sums of money to do for their group. It's what we give politicians enormous amounts of power to do for the collective. Um, And I would say that the quality of a person's success and happiness or level of a person's success and happiness in life is more directly related to the quality of the decisions they make than any other single factor. And so like in my book, I point out, it's not just for business people and it's not just for entrepreneurs, it's for everybody. Everybody is the CEO of their own life. And we need to take responsibility of, of for our own success and happiness and make better decisions in order to uh, facilitate that. So, I mean, we're the only species that can visualize different possible outcomes for different choices that are in front of us. And you'd think with a capacity like that, that as far as we know, no other species has, you'd think we would be really good at this decision-making stuff by now, but we suck. We're either too emotional or we're over-analytical. There's a lot of ways we can go wrong, but we're not very good at it. And I realize the reason for that is because we don't have access to one of our most important faculties, which is the sixth sense called intuition. I say it's the highest leverage human skill because it's it's the most important factor when it comes to success and happiness. Isn't it funny that, you know, as you mentioned a while ago, that we are the CEO of our lives. And yet a lot of entrepreneurs spend a lot of time working in their business, even working on their business without recognizing that they also need to work on themselves. I think that that's uh, that's very true. I think humility goes a long ways. Nobody's got it all. You know, I like to say, like, if you have the greatest idea 
for a product or a service, you're sure it's a killer good idea, which you don't have enough, and, and you actually have some skills to bring to it. You know, I, I like to divide the whole business puzzle into like a three-legged stool. And you've got the three legs. You've got marketing and sales. You've got product vision and, you know, the product side of it or R&D. And you've got management, which includes financial management. And, you know, nobody's great at all three of those things. A, a, a good CEO is good at all three of them. But if you have a startup idea, you have this great idea and you're sure it's a killer good idea. I remember when I was in my 20s, I knew this guy who was 40 and he was a successful entrepreneur. And he asked me a, a question that I never forgot. He said, let's say you had a killer idea and you actually had some skills to go along with it. And what you didn't have is the financial resources to hire the other two legs of the stool uh, so that you had a, a team that could possibly get this thing off the ground. He said, what percentage of the company would you want to retain equity-wise if somebody was going to finance getting you off the runway? And I said, well, at least 51%. And he said, wrong. And he, he said, a great idea is worth 10 to 20%. It's sort of like the royalty that we pay an author who writes a book. It's 10 to 20%. He said, and if, you have, if you're a celebrity, maybe it's slightly higher. If you, uh, and it's assumed that you're going to have some skills to bring to it and the execution part. So if you can get somebody to put up all the financial resources you need and you can, get, and you can retain 49%, yeah, take it. I mean, that's a great deal. And I thought, wow, that really kind of puts the value of ideas in perspective. I mean, they're important, but they're not as important as people think. So it's better, they say, to have percentage of a melon as opposed to the entire 100% of a grape. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, Paul, we are going to take a break so I can thank my sponsor. And then we're going to be coming right back to talk about manifesting success and how you define success. So we take a break and come right back. Peak performers. Success is something that we gradually work towards as an end goal, but we need to be in the right environment to make it happen. Bookophilia is dedicated to providing a space for book, coffee and tea lovers, creatives, educators, students and professionals who want ideas, innovation and inspiration. They have a variety of high quality books, a cafe, events such as book launches, signings and art exhibitions and professional services uniquely tailored to your needs, culture and tastes. Their environment provides for the full literary arts experience, allowing for multifaceted creative expressions. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Bookophilia. Welcome back. And we're talking with Paul O'Brien. He is the author of Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, Cultivating Intuitive Intelligence. Welcome back, Paul. Thank you so much, Annika. So manifesting success, how it is you define such a phenomenon and how did you define it for yourself? I have a very general definition of success. Success basically is manifesting whatever your heart desires. So it's basically figuring out how to get what you want. If you get what you want, that's a definition of success. In my case, I had a hopping career. I was the vice president of marketing and sales for a high-tech company. I was making a lot of money. I was on a career path to what most people would define as success, and I was, I was doing very well, but I wasn't very happy. And I think, you know, that's kind of an important 
aspect of success. How great is monetary success if you're miserable or if you never have enough or if you've got to have more and more and more and you're always competing, keeping up with the Joneses or whatever. But in any case, for me, what I wanted and what I defined as success was a, a, a little phrase that I called creative freedom. I wanted the freedom to be creative in my own way. Like I said, I was a VP of marketing for a high-tech company. I was working for engineers. The owner of the company and the CEO was an engineer. And not that there's any, I, you know, I love engineers. My father was an engineer. My brother was is an engineer. But nevertheless, it was very frustrating for me because I had this desire to do something that was a little bit more human or a little bit more humane or, or something that would touch my soul a little bit more. And so I had this idea, which was about the I Ching, which you mentioned in the introduction of the program. I had used this ancient Chinese uh, divination system since I was 19 years old, and I had found a lot, a lot of value in it as a tool to help me think outside the box and to help me deal with problems that logic can't handle. And there's a lot of problems that logic can't handle in the personal life as well as in the business life. It's timing questions, negotiating strategies, relationships, how do I relate to my girlfriend who hasn't spoken to me in a week, you know, stuff like that. Logic's, logic's not going to do you a lot of good. So I had this I had this ideal I called creative freedom. But what it meant to me was very modest. It meant making a living doing something that I cared about or something I thought was cool, something that was meaningful to me. That was my definition of creative freedom. I never thought about paying off a more, my mortgage. I always thought about making a living, doing something I loved. And uh, that was my definition. Now, I have like so much creative freedom, it's not even funny. I Because I sold the business, which I never intended to do, I had no, no exit strategy. But that was my definition of success. If I could achieve, if I could make a go of it, and just make a living doing something meaningful to me, that would be success for me. But people have to define it for themselves. And I have a chapter on that in the book. It really depends on what your primary values are. Some people really have a high need for status. Some people have a high need for money uh, or comfort or whatever it is. Uh, in my case, it, it was always, uh, I always had this hankering for meaning because I, I'm very philosophical and uh, approach life that way. For you, success is a very personal thing, and that's how we need to be looking at it, because what, what, it, what obtains for you is not necessarily what obtains for me. That's right. You have to define success for yourself. You talked in your book as well about the three stages of life. What are those stages? Well, I divide life into three stages. It's an arbitrary uh, definition of passages, and I do it with relevance to decision-making. So stage one is the student stage. And in this stage, the primary strategic question that needs to be answered is, what am I going to try next? What's the next adventure for me? What trial and error experiment am I going to undertake next? Because I think stage one is where you learn who you are, what you're good at, and what you love to do. And the best way to learn that is to try things, is to experiment. I am totally against 19-year-olds making a lifetime commitment to a certain career path that puts them $50,000 in debt before they know who they are. And I know that's the standard 
a desirable model, but I, I think it causes a lot of damage, and, and, and I think it's almost criminal how easy it is for us to encourage, you know, teenagers and, and college students to go so deeply into debt at such a young age, when, and especially that kind of debt that they can never get out of. It's a monkey on your back, you know, so that's stage one is self-discovery. Stage two starts when you're about 30, and I call that the builder provider stage. This is where you build on, on some skill that you discovered during stage one. You discovered, oh, I really like doing this, or I really like doing that. I've tried these things, and this is really kind of what suits me, and so I want to develop my skills in that area. And so you start building on that, on that interest and on that skill base, and you, be, and you develop mastery at that particular skill until you get to the point where you can provide and you can provide at least for yourself if not for others perhaps for children whatever so that's the builder provider stage and then stage three which starts around age 58 although these are very fuzzy boundaries the ages are not exact i call that the patron mentor stage and that's where you're giving back that's where you're teaching or mentoring or writing books or uh, indulging in philanthropy to support causes that you care about. That's where you're supporting future generations and you're creating a legacy. And so the decisions that we have to make in each of these stages of life are of a different nature and of a different quality. And so I, I, I divided the book into that so that people can look back to their stage one experience, or maybe they are in stage one. There's a lot of uh, college kids reading this book, we're get, and it's getting really good reviews on Amazon from all different ages, but the things that you find that fascinate you in stage one, those are really strong indicators of what you might want to end up doing, and that's what happened to me. I was fascinated by the I Ching, which I discovered when I was 19, and I was fascinated by software, which I discovered when I was 23. And this was even before Apple even existed. Uh, I had a friend who worked in this computer center in Eugene, Oregon. It was a nonprofit connected to the university. And there was this humongous computer. They called it a mini computer. And it would take up half the size of this room. It had huge mag tapes about three feet in diameter. It had one tiny little, one tiny little screen. It was like an oscilloscope. And my friend was a programmer there. And he set up some joysticks to that oscilloscope, and we used to play this game on this gigantic computer, um, like a $150,000 machine that had less power than my iPhone does now. And we would go there late at night, and we'd smoke some pot. I think that's a Jamaican thing, right? Huh. And we, and <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And we would take over this uh, machine and, and play these games on it. And I was enthralled by the potential of software. I didn't really care about gaming so much. I've never been much of a gamer, but the whole idea that it's some form of wizardry where somebody can write some code that delivers an interactive, immersive experience via this machine just fascinated me. And I had visions in the 70s about multimedia and about how this technology of software could be used to deliver educational content or even maybe spiritual content, which is kind of what I ended up doing 15 years later when I got I had this aha moment where I saw the possibilities of an intersection between my two fascinations, the I Ching and multimedia software, which was just starting 
And so I threw caution to the wind. I spent my entire life savings developing a prototype of the first I Ching program. And that's how I became an entrepreneur. And it was, like I said, the dumbest business uh, idea ever. Because in 89, people who knew what the I Ching was didn't buy software. They didn't even like computers. And the people who bought software were engineers and accountants. I would have gotten laughed off a shark tank, like I told you. Uh, but I had so much love. I said, I, I got to do this. You know, my friend said, what are you, crazy? You got a great career, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, well, I, I guess maybe I am. I said, my motto is, wherever God drags me, I will follow. And so I just, I did it. I created a prototype. And like I said, I basically starved for the next 13 years. Often didn't, wasn't able to pay myself. But I kept it together. And luckily, nobody um, with more resources stole my idea. And I ended up adding um, astrology and and it became the world's largest astrology website. I took over AOL horoscopes for AOL. And then after that, we just got 10 million members and massive traffic. And I, we started to be pursued for acquisition. Paul, it has been such an amazing time I've had here talking with you. I'm sure our Peak Performers community members have also been enlightened and inspired by your sharing with us. We're going to thank you so much at this point for you know coming on and we wish you every success in all that you do. But before you run off, <laughs> before you go, I'm going to ask you to just leave your contact information and where can our community members find you? Well, everything that my nonprofit does, I started a nonprofit after I sold the business. It's called the Divination Foundation. And everything that we do now, including my radio show, which is now a podcast and my books and blogs etc and we have an app we have an I Ching app that is getting uh, some awards these days it's called the visionary I Ching but all of that information is on the website at www.divination.com that's d-i-v-i nation.com okay thank you so much Paul thank you so much again and I wish you all the best thanks Henneke it's really been fun and now, a word from our sponsor, Jamaica Stock Exchange. We needed to raise capital, but our experience with local financial institutions was that they were cautious and slow to act, and interest rates were far too high. We had real concerns about financing our business through outside equity investors and the possibility of interference. Could we get a fair valuation for our business? We had our own ideas about the business and its value. Should I go the traditional route of bank financing or should I try the Jamaica Stock Exchange? So we made a call and experienced transformation of our business through conversations. I'm John Mafood, CEO of Jamaican Teas and we're listed on the Jamaica Stock Exchange. Give us a call today at 876-967-3271 to begin your transformation through conversation. We want to see your company listed on the Jamaica Stock Exchange. We have come to the end of another great show. Thank you so much for listening. I'd really love for you to go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review the podcast, The Entrepreneurial You. That's if you've not already done so. And I really look forward to hearing from you about your journey as an entrepreneur if you've not already started and you are about to start, I'd love to hear about that. So send me an email at hennikawatkisporto at gmail.com. In the meantime, please 
visit henikawatkisporter.com where you can access several resources to help you level up and peak your performance. Feel free to explore the website. There are several resources, there are blogs, there are the podcast, those past episodes that you've not yet listened to. You can also leave a comment on the show notes page of these episodes. So I look forward to interacting with you and to share your journey. Remember, you were born to win, but to be a winner, you must plan to win, prepare to win and expect to win. What good?